Eric Veal with the AppsJack Capable Communities Podcast, and I am coming to you from Seattle, Washington, which is home of Microsoft, Amazon, Facebook, Boeing, and an incredible startup ecosystem that rivals Silicon Valley. Each episode, I bring on friends and guests who are executives and business leaders from the local community and around the world to talk about a topic that we find very interesting. Please enjoy this episode. Hey everybody, this is Eric Veal with the AppsChat Capable Communities Podcast, and today we're going to be talking about developing and managing human capital. Uh, I feel very lucky. Today in the studio, I've got six guests, uh, the most guests we've ever had. Uh, we just uh, pre-funked a little bit, not, a, not any drinking or anything, but we had, uh, had some lunch, and that was good. Got to know each other a little bit, but uh, we're excited to launch into it, but I'm going to let each of the guests introduce themselves briefly, and uh, first I have Steve Kubacki. Hi, I'm uh, Steve Kabaki. Uh, I'm a clinical psychologist, and I'm in the process of developing two apps. Uh, one uh, is a guided meditation app uh, that focuses on a mind-body healing, and then uh, another app on dating. Oh, hi, my name is Andrea Cremese. I'm a software engineer at Smartsheet, which is a SaaS business based here in Bellevue. I recently conducted a body of research for my MBA dissertation, uh, looking into motivation and psychological contract for software engineers here in the area, in the Pacific Northwest. This is Joe Connick. Uh, I'm a business development and strategy consultant. I've got over 30 years of general management experience, uh, domestically and internationally, and have helped with uh, over 12 startup businesses. Hi, my name is Aftar Faruqi, and I'm the president of Inabia Software and Consulting. We provide solution and telecom architecture work, and you can find me on my LinkedIn, Aftar Faruqi. Hi, my name is Lee Carter. I am a uh, IT consulting and professional services um, executive. I've been working in the industry for about 12 years now, and uh, staffing is a major component of what we do, so that's one of the reasons Eric has asked me to join. And I'm Rachel Alexandria. I'm a leadership and power guide. My background was as a clinical psychotherapist, and I have a specialty in conflict management and resolution. You can find me at rachelalexandria.com. So welcome, everybody. Uh, it's great to have everybody here. And uh, as I mentioned, so this episode is going to be about developing and managing human capital, and we'll get into more details soon. All right, this is Eric Veal with the AppsChat Capable Communities Podcast, and our topic today is developing and managing human capital. And the first discussion we wanted to have was, the question is, how much risk can or should employees take at work uh, in order to advance their careers and so forth versus how much risk is too much that might result in uh, sanctions or even firing? So I basically throw that out to the panel at this point. So if anybody wants to jump in with their particular thoughts, uh, please take it away. I, I'm happy to start. Uh, I think it's very dependent on the company, on the culture, on the leadership, and most importantly, on the content of the work that somebody does. If somebody is a knowledge worker, he's going to have a larger component of risk that he can take on. Uh, probably he's going to be actually rewarded taking some calculated on some uh, uh, specific risk. If on the other side, he's more, his work involves less cognitive uh, 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 content, Probably taking risk. Of course, there are uh, as well other aspects like health and safety and whatnot. So <laughs> let's uh, let's stay away from those. But anyway, that's that's that that's gonna depend to me at least. One of the consideration is the industry, the kind of leadership, and the kind of company that somebody works in. Uh, 
Rachel, how about you? Did you have did you have something to add to that? No, <laughs> I thought you did at well, some point. I was just going to say, you know, it might be interesting for us to talk about which industries are more prone to allowing risk and which ones are having a hard time with it, and how does that work to their detriment? That's a good point. Yeah. So we'd, we'd spoken about at lunch that um, I made the example of sales organizations. So not per se industry, but basically based on the department and the firm, I think sales is naturally risk taking and it attracts people that are probably risk takers, for example. Um, maybe in some ways, executives, I don't know if that's true, that uh, executives are more risk prone, but I, I kind of have to think that they're probably, they've probably taken some degree of risk if, if they've gotten to that level. Um, so I, I guess I don't have a great answer of how to break it up by industry per se. Uh, Lee, do you have thoughts? Yeah. Well, one of the things that, that occurs to me is the fact that, and speaking as a salesperson myself, it's really easy for me to take risk because delivery is a completely separate component. So I, you know, and, and this is something that I've always encouraged people within my sales organizations to avoid, but a lot of salespeople will make promises that are incredibly difficult to deliver on mm. because they are looking to close a sale. And, you know, we kind of touched on this a little bit at lunch. But um, so what sort of issues does that raise when a salesperson is out there kind of going rogue against what, uh, you know, what the company can actually deliver on? After have you have something? Yeah. So I wanted to add, uh, Lee, um, this is true. Sales sales job is really a very difficult job. So most time, most of the time when the salespeople take the risk is because their direction is not correct. When the direction is not correct, this the, so the executive really taking the risks and keep giving a chance to do this thing. And when the point come where they really cannot, you know, do it because the salesperson not coming to the right direction, and that's why they get fired. Yeah, there, there's something about success, I think, as part of that. I mean, part of the, the risk is, I think, it basically goes to say that there's some uncertainty and some unknown. It's not a guarantee that the next widget's going to roll off the line or something that, that uh, somebody needs to close a big deal or, or a sale that is, uh, you know, a big sale. That There's, a, there's always uncertainty in that un- until the end. So um, I guess the risk-taking aspect. Any, anybody else have, have thoughts? Go, go ahead, Andrea. Uh, in my previous position, uh, I used to manage the um, production of tenders in the New York City uh, uh, construction industry for uh, skyscrapers. And there is a specific project that I can think of where I, where I took actually quite a large risk. I just took it incrementally. So I first engaged, uh, I, I saw an opportunity. Usually, at least for me, risk comes from an opportunity to do something. So at that time, the, the project allowed us to take a certain route that was outside our scope. I, I thought that it was, would have been good to include that risk because in construction, when you take part of the scope, you're taking on risk. But I thought there was an opportunity there. So I took it incrementally. I first got another engineer. I was the, uh, the, tender, leader for that pro- the tender leader for that project. And we scoped out a little bit. And then I presented it to the CEO that was actually leading the sales, I mean, in that in that terms, sales is a more of an engineer product that has a high uh, impact on the, um, a single project has a high impact on the turnover. But in that case, we could then commit increasing levels of uh, um, uh, of resources in terms of designers, and we eventually won that project. But it all started with a germ that then increased in scope, if you want. Joe can, uh, Connick, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, no, I think it's, uh, Andre mentioned this at the beginning, which is about the culture of the organization. And there's an example I remember from my career, and I started started out in sales, 
And um, then I got the opportunity to take on a, a role in, in a customer service organization. And it was applying some of the same mindset there. And my boss was very open to it. And you know, we came forward with some ideas and some plans to merge customer service with collections because the, the need to have cross training and those kinds of skills and uh, you know, you know, reduce the cost and, and take care of customers. And I remember you know, bringing that forward. I was taking on you know, kind of the risk of promoting that, you know, going up the chain of command. I get a phone call. like you know, We had a conversation about what happens when you take vacation, and this is a few years ago. Come back from vacation, my boss goes, great news. The executive team bought it. Fantastic. Uh, we're going to implement it. Um, but the guy from collections is going to run that, and you're going to go do this now. And it was like, you know, I didn't manage the risk to my own personal career to being a risk taker of promoting something that was really great for the organization. And so I think that sometimes you need to, um, you know, think about that as well as in your career as you're taking risks, you're getting the positive feedback because the culture was there to do that. But I totally wasn't managing the risk to my own career as to what would happen. Rachel, you got some? That really makes me curious because there's such wisdom and experience in this room. You, we all have such actually long careers. I would love to hear stories of risks that you've taken that you wish didn't pan, like, didn't pan out the way you... Because like, that's kind of what your story is. It, it sort of panned out for you and it kind of didn't, right? So I imagine each of us have stories like that of risks that we would have done differently. Yeah, are, are there failed projects or examples that people... Um, where things didn't work out, I guess, as they had intended. They went, went through their, I, I mean, I think everybody's prone to take risks. They're going to try things, and you just don't, don't know what you don't know, and, and there, there can be some brutal lessons. Um, I'm, I mean, I've definitely gotten fired in my career. There's no doubt about it. I can't think of specific episodes that, uh, of risk-taking that led me down a path. I, I'll say this, is that being a contractor and a consultant is very risky business. It pays better. Um, but you don't, you don't know a lot of what you're getting into necessarily. And so different from being an employee in an organization where you're employed for the long term and there's a lot more promises, you're basically promising as a consultant to deliver. And there's all kinds of opportunity for the buyer, if the relationship is not great, for example, to be more than happy to fire you and let you go. So they're just going to give the money to somebody else. And I, I have a, a friend right now, uh, he and his wife are, are, um, it's actually uh, Restore is the name of the product, but they're they're both doctors, and she has a skin product called Restore, a line of skin products, and um, they're hiring a bunch of, or they've they've worked with a, a variety of of contractors on their business, and they just find that to be quite difficult. That they don't always get the results that they want with these people that have made promises to them about their business, and it's them spending their you know hard earned money on these things, and so they're you know. De- figuring out how to deal with contractors, for example, or contracting or performance when you don't have a large organization to do it. That's definitely hard. Uh, Steve, you have anything to add? Uh, yeah, I was uh, kind of thinking about how we assess risk-taking, uh, sensation-seeking, and impulsiveness. And these seem to have a fairly large genetic loading to them. And some people, you know, in other words, people are kind of born risk-takers or they're born kind of impulsive or sensation-seeking. And, you know, one of the difficulties in any organization is, is trying to match that level of risk-taking, sensation-seeking with a specific job. And then there's also the issue of kind of how 
people with different levels of risk taking, how do they get along? So if you have somebody who's a manager who's a low risk taker, yet you have an employee who's a very high risk taker, you know, how does that how does that work out? How do you resolve that kind of conflict? Uh, again, some of this will probably depend on the kind of job the person has and the kind of management or culture there is. I can certainly speak to that because I think the, to- the one or two times I've been fired, it's because I, I mean, now I'm an entrepreneur and I've worked for myself for 11 years. So clearly I'm very risk tolerant. <laughs> um, so the jobs I've been let go from were ones where I was taking bigger risks and my managers were not, that's not what they had me in there for. I was working in admin and I saw opportunities. Why don't we do this? How about if this? And they, that's just not what they wanted from me. It was a bad fit. So, so I think this is the proof that the, it's not like the contracting job is a risk-taking. Even the full-time job is a risk-taking. Yeah, that's true. There's <laughs> risk in that, too. There's no sure things in that. So, so there's an attitude, an attitude issue about, so as some people have said that um, an individual's propensity to take risks, I mean, so I guess there's a question of dealing with your direct manager. So I can say this, I suppose, speaking from a perspective of intrapreneurship, if I'm uh, looking to take a risk in a job opportunity that I have, and I'm, I'm, I have my mind perhaps on some project uh, because I have a lot of training in project management. I know in many ways how to manage and mitigate my risk. It's probably one of my specialties. Is like how do I bring in the right coalition and team and whatnot and people to support me so that I know I'm not going to get knifed when I go actually do the thing. So there's, there's a lot of strategies and, and strategic thinking, I think, that's necessary to take risks. Otherwise, you're at risk if you do are, are ambitious, perhaps. Yeah, and, you know, every organization has a risk mitig- mitigation strategy. None of them, well, few of them have a risk encouragement strategy. And taking risks is what drives innovation. So, you know, kind of going back to, you know, a couple of points that have already been made, what do you do to encourage those risk takers? Should you foster them? And how do you do that without ending up in the ditch? You know, yep. you've got to keep the curbs up. Yeah. So what are what are some practices that people can name? Andrea, you got you got some? Yeah. And uh, I recently spoke with a, a few engineering managers here in the Pacific Northwest. And one of the aspects, we were talking about something slightly different, but one of the aspects that most of them mentioned was <clears throat> to provide uh, feedback loops up the chain, if you want, quote unquote, for example, in their cases, from the engineers to the engineering managers to the engineering directors about either ideas, possible uh, innovations that can be done on the project, on the product, in order to provide emergent R&D rather than having R&D on the side. And that's where, if you want, it's not necessarily, uh, it's not going down the, the path of, okay, I'm taking the risk, I'm using four or five days of engineering time to do this product that then doesn't work. So that's one of the aspects. And the second aspect is actually providing with uh, people on the ground, on the field that have, you know, they are in contact with the customers, they're in contact with the product, with the um, visibility over what the management actually is interested into, what they care about, what where they see the vision for the product going towards. And that I think that that might actually provide, inform whoever is taking the risk over that my, this is a risk that we I may want to raise over, okay, this doesn't really fit within the vision, the long-term position that the management or the or or or, or the, um, the the company wants to have. You know, today uh, one of the things that we see is you know every uh, company is talking about innovation. You know, whether it be 
you know, continuous improvement, you know, agile methodologies, you, you know, pick it, breakthrough, new ideas. And the challenge is how do you bring that if, if the executive suite or if even as an entrepreneur in a small company is saying, you know, this is going to be car part of our core uh, DNA or our, our value system or anything else, how do you bring that into reality? Um, and I've had opportunities a couple times in my career to actually, you know, help bring that to reality, but it's about process. Yeah. Uh, and so you, it's one thing to talk about it, proclaim it at the annual meeting, the quarterly meetings, have all the rah-rah going on. But if you don't translate that into something that people are responsible for, and what we've done at a couple of organizations is, is spe specifically around continuous improvement and saying, okay, you know, anybody who has uh, a budget that has people in their organization had to submit in their plan, you know, they get to nominate, you know, an idea for continuous improvement within their function. And they were responsible for, you know, identifying it, you know, articulating it, and delivering it. And so, you know, it was, yes, somewhat top-down, but it was also part of the whole process that we as an organization said that, you know, we're not just going to send everyone to agile training, you know, pat ourselves on the back that after a year we, we you know, we all did it. What's the result? You know, you know, so, and then also measuring people and their performance saying, hey, great that, you know, you're not going to get promoted until you've actually implemented a process improvement project that was, you know, within your department, participated in one that might be cross-departmental or, you know, been a sponsor at the corporate level. So that innovation became something that wasn't just talked about. It became part of the culture of the organization that was valued. And if you failed, there was a consequence. That's right. Yeah, quality is part of it as well. It seems that's the whole failure notion of it is you can authorize people and enable people to do it, but if the wrong people don't have the or if the the right people don't have the wrong training or vice versa, wrong team, wrong skills, wrong idea, wrong innovation, there's a lot of uh, ways to get projects wrong. Uh, people who, for example, are professional project managers or change manager people know how to do it right, hypothetically, at least by the book, whether it's right or wrong, there's at least a methodology to follow of how to manage and deliver a project, for example. One other quick story I'll mention, an example is uh, Adobe has this system inside for its product managers that uh, I think it's called like Redbox or Bluebox or something like that, and they basically distribute this kit to um, people that are going to be product managers that has a credit card and all these kind of uh, tools and whatnot. And they're basically authorized to just go and do the thing. And, and I think that's another trend uh, in industry that I've seen is the product manager role probably has a lot more uh, flexibility and freedom to basically be an entrepreneur or CEO of their product. They're responsible for um uh, profit and loss on, on their particular product. And, you know, they'd receive a budget and a team and, and the resources to do it. So I think that organizations are learning that they, they need to hire, uh, and, and they're, they're obviously not going to let everybody be a product manager. You probably couldn't come out of high school and just say, I'm going to be a product manager. Now you probably wouldn't even know what that meant. So Rachel. Well, I love that it, it actually raises an interesting question in terms of managing people, which is how do you identify someone who's a visionary versus a wild hare? You know, True. somebody who, who just gets really in love with ideas, but they don't have the ability to identify good ones and follow through. Yeah. Does, does anybody have examples of, of individuals or even in management experiences where you dealt with, I suppose, ambitious people, some of whom are highly skilled and able to? Uh, like realize their vision themselves with tools or with a team versus people that are purely rogue and idiotic. Fantasy. Yeah, fantasy, yeah, just kind of crazy stuff. Anybody have experiences with that? 
I guess not. So <laughs> We've all been very fortunate to either see the ideas through or they were killed at the beginning. But I, yeah. I, wanted, to make, I wanted to make another interesting point, which... Uh, it's something it's that going we, to be very interesting. I hope so. <laughs> or not, or not. Who knows? Uh, it's an inter- let's, say, let's say it's interesting to me. Uh, it's something that we haven't touched upon, which is money as a motivator. I love that non, nobody mentioned, oh, let's just stash, let's just toss 10,000, 100,000, whatever. And I think it ties to the work of one of my personal heroes, which is Dan Ariely, about how money doesn't really uh, grant uh, superior performance with for uh, 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 knowledge workers. So... That was just a point that I wanted to, to, um, to toss out there. Great. Rachel, thoughts? No? So I can, I can give you the exam, uh, example of uh, the ambitious people. Uh, yeah. I had my own experience. So the, when the person is very ambitious, right, and you are you're promoting him and you're, you, know, as, you want to see this person's success, but what happens is when they, they start going bypass you and they start doing so many decisions yourself, yeah. yourself and then, you know, keep going, keep going and then, you know, ended up, you know, fired because, you know, they are just, instead of doing the right thing, they start doing the wrong thing because they think they have a very good, you know, footprint uh, in, in the company and a strong voice. So, yeah. Well, I think the common thread I hear in this, in, in organizations that are successful, and I especially heard it in Andrea's examples, is like repeated communication, like continuing to have perpetuated feedback loops. You try things, you come back together, you process how did it go. And that's mm-hmm. how you take those incremental steps yeah. to yeah, find out whether someone's crazy yeah, it, or it, things are working. Yeah, and it goes, it, yeah, and, it goes uh, and the complement of that is actually having a leadership that ha- is authentic. Like uh, I think Joe was saying before that you can't just talk the talk, you need to walk the walk. It's one of the parts that, you know, in the company that I'm right now, Smartsheet, actually, the, the leadership is very open and it's, I think, something that encourages and spurs um, uh, innovation, but also it spurs that dialogue where you actually believe when you propose something and somebody tells you, okay, we'll put this on the roadmap, we have priorities, but I, I hear you. And that authenticity makes you maybe feel heard, but then you see these things getting on the roadmap. Exactly. So it's, it's kind of a feedback loop, going back to what you were saying, which I think it's absolutely key. Are, are there uh, any other this. basic skills we can name for managers? I'm, I'm just thinking of kind of Aftab's um, example where I guess there's a role in project management, which is your sponsor, for example, or your manager. Somebody, somebody is primarily authorizing you hypothetically. That person may or may not be experienced in authorizing or leading change, they might be best as delivery managers who are consistently kind of running, running the field. Whereas, um, can anybody, can anybody speak to those, I I think skills or what would a manager do to enable innovation thoughts? Well, we'll wrap it up at that. We'll let the audience think about that. And uh, we'll be right back today. We're here. This is the abstract capable communities podcast. And we just had a conversation about, Uh, risk-taking within organizations and uh, just different levels of, of tolerance, basically, that organizations might have for people taking risk. If you want to hear more about uh, thoughts on technology, uh, in general about coding, or if you want to hear more about Smartsheet.com, which is the uh, software as a service company where I just started working and for which I honestly love working for, you can reach me at AndreaCremese.com. That's A-N-D-R-E-A-C-R-E-M-E-S-E.com. You can write in Italian too. You've been listening to the Abstract Podcast. The creator and host of this podcast is Eric Veal. It was recorded, engineered, and produced by Christian Harris. 
You can contact us and find all our show notes on our website at appsjack.libsyn.com. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N. If you like what you hear on this podcast, let us know by writing us a very nice five-star review on iTunes and subscribing. You can also find out more by going to appsjack.com meetup to get more information on this month's topic in the corresponding meetup group that Eric hosts in Bellevue, Washington each month. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next month for our next episode of the Abstract Podcast. This has been a Seatown Media production. Find out more at seatownmedia.com. S-E-A hyphen townmedia.com. Media.com.